chapter 16 of Women, Children, Love, and Marriage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Brenica, World Audiobooks Podcast. Women, Children, Love, and Marriage by Catherine Gasquin Hartley. Section 16 of Section 2 children difficulties and mistakes in sex education part two every boy looks forward to the day when he can escape the rule of the father and himself usurp his power i think you will find here the secret spring of all later rebellion against authority either in the boy or in the man i must give another warning again it is when this child this feeling of rebellion jealousy and hate are hidden and work in the child's soul without his knowledge that the greatest harm is done in this connection i may recount the case of a boy who grew out of babyhood showing unusual affection for his stepfather he was also too much attached to his mother being in that most unfortunate position of an only and too much considered child and in consequence suffered from strongly jealous feeling towards the stepfather in this way a conflict was aroused between love and hate and serious nervous symptoms arose the origin of the trouble was first discovered at about ten years when the boy developed a very passionate hatred against god he was overheard swearing on his toy sword to devote his life to killing god as he had not been brought up in an over-religious home and had hardly ever been taken to church this vehement hatred which continued for some time was noticed as unusual now the specialist consulted about the nervous symptoms at once found in this god hatred of rejection of the very common boyish hatred to the father parents learned that this was a sign of health an effort the boy was making to rid himself of an unbearable inward trouble I would emphasize the necessity of parents having the right knowledge and the love that will enable them to recognize what is important in the development of character. Too little attention is given by parents to the spontaneous utterances of children. It is this that will give the clue to what is troubling the child. Questions never get direct and real answers. It is what the child brings out unconsciously that should be noted his wishes hidden as a rule under some symbol that the parent unaided may find very difficult to interpret we are too apt and in these mothers are the worst sinners to consider their children as unthinking beings always i believe children know more than we credit to them this is true in particular of all emotional states as i have tried to make plain it is these emotions acting and interacting in connection with the home relations, which are of lasting importance. Mothers who even in the nursery overforce the emotional growth of their little ones. With the unceasing demands of an over-demonstrative and unhealthy tenderness, fathers who themselves, too arrogant for power, allow their boys and girls no independent possession of their own lives, such parents are the destroyers of their children. Their thoughtlessness and ignorance create problems that are tragedies of pain to children and leave them marred and often maimed for their conflict with life. I am prepared for an objection. 
You may some of you be thinking that this picture I have drawn for you of nursery tragedies is colored from my imagination and without sufficient relation to truth. Little children, you may be saying, cannot feel these devastating adult passions. You are projecting onto them evils created by your own diseased mind, and you turn back to your angel innocence, belief, which must be through, at any rate, you are convinced in the case of your own child. But may I tell you this? You must not come to these problems of the child with an already fixed conviction that they do not exist. Because this may well be, not because they are not there, active even in your own nursery, but because you shut your eyes determined not to see them. You think this about their not being present because you want to think it, not because it is true. Also, it is very easy even for the wisest parent to be led astray, for the child is the most accomplished actor and is always hiding its real self from you. You see, the child has truly a very hard part to play, a part it can lay down only when no grown-ups are by, in surroundings very opposed to its own desires or its primitive needs, while still a savage in emotions. It has to pretend to be what you think it is, to do what you think it ought to do, and like what you think it ought to like. It has filled me often with wonder and admiration to see the really brilliant way in which even the youngest children play up to the angel role forced upon them by grown-ups. Much naughtiness and many violent unexplained tempers are really a breakdown in this part. The right cue is forgotten at the right moment or the correct entrance is missed. And I feel it very necessary to emphasize to you that the naughty child is not so much being naughty as being himself. He rushes at you with a knife not because he is in a temper, but rather the temper is the liberating key which allows his real desire to kill you to break through the barricade of civilized desires that you are building around him. And it is very necessary for the grown-up to understand the intense satisfaction of creative strength which the child gains by this breaking out of his real self, a satisfaction that is greatly marred, it is true, and even turned to pain by the consciousness of knowing he has broken adult rules of behavior, been a naughty boy, and grieved you. Always there is this conflict going on between his primitive egocentric desires and the demands of the adult world in which he has to learn to live, it is this conflict and his success and failure in it, which determines his growth. More and more, he has to learn to give up his own desires and subordinate his own will. Yet, I am not sure if his repentance, when he fails, is altogether good for him. Certainly, if it is excessive and if it occurs too frequently, it weakens the force of life. And it is most urgent of all to remember that the parent or nurse or teacher by constantly requiring from the uncivilized child the standard of conduct right for the civilized adult may and most frequently does produce a strain which turns the creative force of life back upon itself. It is ever thus in life when we draw back too hastily or too much coerced from any spontaneous expression of emotion, the energy gathered for the direct expression flows back impotent. I believe that many a creative artist is destroyed in the civilizing process of the child being turned into the good boy or girl. 
And this brings me to a question of the most urgent importance to all parents and teachers who attempt to guide the emotional development of a child, to go slowly and never to force an outward practice of virtue from the child if that particular stage of virtue has not been reached. We do not expect the child to read until it has learned to read, nor to calculate and work sums before it understands the use of figures. We do not expect it to walk until it has stumbled and fallen many times, nor to use its tiny hands with precision until it has broken many objects. Why then should we expect it to be good without learning to be good? And spatially, I ask, why should we demand a standard of emotional behavior much in advance of anything to which we ourselves have attained? For in truth, every child has a twisted and most difficult path to travel in order to reach the standard of conduct expected by the adult world. Few parents realize at all the harm that so readily may be done. From any over-hastening on the road to virtue, to the child's sensitive responsive to every suggestion, most liable to injury, who is always balanced between the desire to be a dirty, little savage, like himself, or a clean, well-behaved person, like a grown-up. For what gives every adult so tremendous a hold over the child is his never-ceasing desire to push forward to a stage above what he is at. Always he is pulled in two directions, forward to effort and good conduct and the real world of action and of grown-ups, and backward towards ease and self-pleasing and the dream world of the child in which he thinks only of what he wants himself. If we hurry him too much there will be a regression. The uncivilized trait that has not been got rid of by experience of its uselessness and voluntarily been cast aside will be thrust down deep into the psyche where its unrealized power sends up primitive and uncivilized wishes which will certainly mar the adult life even if they do not wreck it. It is not from sheer contrariness or nastiness that children develop bad habits, that they pick noses, bite nails, stammer, and other much more worse things, or later are too shy or too boisterously self-assertive or develop illness and morbid fears. Such symptoms may be replacements of infantile curiosities and interest which were denied their satisfaction by the mother's warning, open harmful, however gently given. That is nice, darling. In particular, harm is caused by a too early checking of the child's delight in messy things, making mud pies, playing with water, using hands instead of knife and fork, and other nasty messy habits. The particular habit may, and usually does, disappear, but the check and thwarted energy is still potent and at any time in afterlife may reappear clothed in a fresh dress of concealment. All that can be done with a bad habit is to turn it into new directions of rightful energy. As for instance, the messy child should be given heaps of plasticine or wax and sand to play with. Similarly, with the desire to play with water, this is a symbolic action by which the young child frees itself from some inner hidden trouble. I know of one case where a child until quite an advanced age, always after a relapse in bad and primitive behavior, had a curious way of blowing water through long tubes. 
The result was highly satisfactory and never failed to bring the child back to good and social behavior. As an example of the terrible harm that may be done by an over-fastidious niceness of behavior, I may cite a rather curious case I happen to know, where a mother was so afraid of nakedness and disliking the sight of her own body that she actually put on a bathing dress when she had a bath even in the privacy of her own bathroom. This mother had a son whose adult life was rendered miserable and his happiness to a great extent injured by horrible and haunting obscene visions. Here, in very truth, the cleanliness of the mother become the uncleanliness of the son. I must hasten on. I am bound to leave out much that might well be noticed, for the subject is very difficult and very wide. I hope, however, I have made clear to you the following truths. 1. That any education of children in sex that is to result in success in the afterlife cannot be fulfilled by the imparting of set and fixed lessons on sex enlightenment given either in the home or in the school. 2. That this education is concerned with the entire emotional life of the child. 3. That is continuous and unceasing. 4. And that it is a work of such complexity that for even the wisest mistakes are certain and success uncertain. Above all else, I am sure we have to avoid an easy and lazy optimism. And with such pearls awaiting the unconscious, is it any wonder that the chief element of safety often is a negative one, non-interference? By non-interference, the two chief factors leading to emotional disturbance and ill health may almost certainly be avoided. Thwarted wishes are not thrust back and repressed to work harm in the psyche, causing mental and bodily ill health which often does not manifest itself for many years. Development is not hurried on too rapidly, so that necessary primitive stages of growth are omitted or hastened over too quickly, causing not infrequently in the later years of life, a regression backwards to primitive and uncivilized conduct. When interference becomes necessary, it must be given wisely and with due understanding of the child's position. I mean, it must be the right instruction for the spatial child at that stage of its growth. Not at all, but the adult think it ought to be, taught or would like to teach it. There can be no fixed rules as to sex teaching, no maxims laid down that can safely be always followed. Take, for instance, the one apparently simple matter of satisfying the child's certain and right curiosity at the different stages of its growth by telling it the facts of birth and as it grows older, explaining the difficulties that most certainly will arise in the mind of every boy and girl in regard to these questions. So far, I have said little about this matter because most people say much, holding it as the one thing implied by sex education, whereas I regard it. As I have tried to make plain, as I limited those certainly important duty in connection with that education, which should be fulfilled by parents and within certain limitations by teachers in the schools. But here, again, I am bound to utter warnings. There must be no overforcing of knowledge not sought for by the child. This is at least as injurious to the emotional growth as overforcing is to the intellectual growth. Anyone who has read Jang's account of his analysis of little Anna will know what I mean. Little Anna became troubled and nervous 
worried about the birth of a little brother or sister. I forgot which. Telling her the truth did not help her, and it took Professor Jiang many months of patient work with the child to get to the bottom of exactly what was troubling her. The most urgent rule for the mother in this matter is this, never to arouse sexual curiosity, but to watch for its spontaneous expression and always satisfy it when it is present. This, of course, is the same as saying, always tell the child all the truth it wants to know. The difficulty here, of course, is that so rarely is the child able to ask for the knowledge he or she wants. What above all else, it is necessary is for the mother to watch for the child's unconscious betrayal of its own curiosity. I mean by this, that some unconsidered remark or act is the surest hope of finding just what part of the problem is troubling him or her at that time. In almost all cases, there is a personal element of jealousy, unknown to the child of carefully hidden, which is directed against one or other parent, usually the father, or against some brother or sister. This is why the intellectual teaching of the facts of birth through necessary does not help very much and often disastrously fails. As I am trying all the time to force upon you, the real sex education is an emotional education. That is why it is so difficult. I may take this planer by means of an illustration which I give in my book on sex education and national health. It was told me by a very wise mother of her way of dealing with her son, who was I think about 14 years old. This son showed he was thinking and was evidently worried about the very small families of one or at the most two children for the childless marriages coming among his mother's friends. He did not, however, speak of his trouble directly. Instead, he beat round the question, somewhat in the manner of a shying horse. After he had gone on for some time, he one day asked his mother if her friends were more delicate, meaning of course more refined, than other people. His mother was aware of what was troubling him. She knew what he really wanted to know was whether married people live in celibacy when they had not children. She wisely told him the plain facts and for him, at that time, curiosity was quieted. A boy of nine had a dream which he told to his parents. His mother was in the shop and a man on a bicycle, dressed as an officer, came along the road. He, the little boy, rushed to the bicycle, stop it, flung the man off and killed him. I'm telling the dream, the boy said. I prevented him getting to mother. This dream is so clear that I did not wait to interpret it behind saying that the father of the boy was an officer. It will cause no surprise to anyone with even a rudimentary knowledge of the emotional troubles of children to know that this boy developed serious nervous symptoms. It has seemed worthwhile to record these two instructive little stories. As a means of illustrating the kind of incident, which furnishes the guide with regard to the nature of the trouble to be looked for, and shows in the first case as well the kind of help a watchful and instructed parent can give to relieve the trouble prevailing in the minds of the young. Dreams should always be noted. They throw the sharpest light of the child's emotional conflicts. I must again urge the necessity of the parent paying the closest attention to the child's prattle. To watching carefully his games and his behavior, for in this way 
Only can the clue be found to make it possible to give the kind of instruction or treatment that is wanted. I may give a few instances. Such things as the frequent childish desire to sit up with father and mother, the calling for the mother at night under the plea of fear, are very certain signs of active jealousy. Again, the very usual unwillingness of the child to grow up arises out of the inability to meet the necessity of separating the self from the protective tenderness of the mother. The child is always tending to turn back to safety, and if this is encouraged by the mother, the child in afterlife will be unable to meet the necessities of adult action. The too fond mother perpetuates the childhood of her son or her daughter. What the parents can do is to watch the child and to learn themselves in order to have the knowledge to clear up difficulties as disappear. And then it may be possible to remove obstructions to growth. Further, they can place within the child's reach the materials, the sand and clean messy things to play with, machines to pull to pieces, swords to fight with, dolls to play with. Every child will need different materials by which to a certain extent. Liberation can be found from their primitive instincts by giving them a free and harmless expression. In fact, the real work of the parent may be likened to that of the stage scene shifter and property manager. Parental power guides the early years of the child like a higher controlling fate. But when the boy or girl begins to grow up, there begins also the conflict between the home attachments and the need to break away in order to free the growing soul from the spell of the family. It is the war between the generations. The frequent and often very deep depression of puberty arises from this struggle. And there are the many other and often very disturbing symptoms, which are rooted in the difficulty of the new adjustments. The boy or girl tries often to separate himself or herself as much as possible from his family. He or she may even estrange themselves from their parents, but inwardly, this only binds them more firmly to the family ties. The outward break must be regarded as a dangerous sign of the inner conflict which the unselfish wisdom of the parents ought to be able to aid. I cannot follow this important matter further, but I would wish to say that this is the time for the teacher to step forward and take up the work begun by the parent. The parents at this period are often hindrances to the child. They must push their children away from them in order to help the growing souls to gain their liberation. The uncertain and, as I fear they may seem, unsatisfactory conclusions that must result from any honest inquiry into this difficult question of helping the young at the start of their life's journey is due in part of the fact that, even yet, and in spite of all the new knowledge that has been gained in the last few years, we know very little about child's emotional processes. Unfortunately, our knowledge is not sufficient to make it possible for any dogmatic statements to be placed even tentatively before parents. There can be no ready-made prescriptions, no certain cures. We do not even know where the greatest trouble lies, whether it is in the parents and the teachers, the adults who fail to understand the child, or in the child who fights away from the understanding that those who love and train him are able to offer. We do know, however, that the difficulties of the part of the child are very great, much greater than most of us, whether we are parents or teachers. 
satisfied in an easy grown-up optimism, have cared to realize. In many ways, we the adults, the parents, and the teachers, we who are a generation behind the children and already have been through the long, struggling, upward journey by which they are now traveling, ought to manage our love and our training for them more carefully, more sympathetically, and more intelligently. I say intelligently because the sins committed in love against children are more lastingly harmful than many of the sins committed under neglect or even under unkindness. Thus, the final word I have to say to parents in regard to their children is this. Do not love your children too possessively. Try to understand and respect them. Realize their existence as individuals with interests and needs apart from yourself. If necessary, send them from you. Do not love your children for your own satisfaction, but for their good and to help them to establish with as little disaster as possible their own lives. End of chapter 16, recording by Maria Brenica, World Audiobooks Podcasts.